In the name of God, creator, redeemer, and giver of life. Amen. Good morning. Always beautiful to see you. Uh, as you probably figured out, today is the first Sunday of Lent, or the long litany probably gave that away. Um, and you might also know then that um, as we do with every Lent, each of the clergy lead a book study at 9 o'clock on Sunday morning. Uh, Dean Nathan is leading a discussion of St. Augustine's Confessions. Canon Shanna is working through a book by Rachel Held Evans called Wholehearted Faith. And I'm teaching one of my favorite novels, Gilead, by Marilyn Robinson. And if you missed a class and you feel like, oh no, what do I do? I believe all of our classes this morning were recorded so you can catch them on our YouTube channel. Anyway, Gilead, my favorite novel, <clears throat> won both the Pulitzer Prize and the National Book Critics Circle Award for fiction back in 2005. It's a story about an elderly pastor living in a small town in Iowa in the 1950s. The old pastor has a young son, only eight or so, and the pastor knows he's dying and that his son is going to grow up without really having known his father. So the pastor sets down his thoughts in the form of a long letter to his son in the hopes that his son will read it when he's old enough to understand. At first glance, then, the novel is a kind of rambling collection of memories and stories about the pastor and his father and his grandfather that stretches back to the Civil War era. But throughout the novel, the old pastor is also coming to terms with the fact that there is a devil at work, a charming, handsome young devil, a devil of a man named Jack Bowden. Jack is our pastor's godchild, the son of his best friend, who's also, also a pastor, and the good reverend's greatest nemesis. Jack is the problem that the pastor has to solve before he dies. The good reverend describes Jack as a gifted, ingenious troublemaker, as if he were born to break the rules, driven by this unseen force of mischief. He pulls pranks and commits minor crimes as soon as he can walk. He ingeniously rigs a fuse and sets the pastor's mailbox on fire. He steals the pastor's precious Greek New Testament. He paints the steps on the pastor's front porch with molasses. This is one of the stories that Jack, about Jack that the pastor tells. I'm just going to read this little story to you. That boy, Jack, was always alone, always grinning, always intent on some piece of devilment. He wasn't more than 10 when he took off in a Model T he saw idling in a street downtown. Cars were still pretty rare around here in those days, so his interest was understandable. He drove it straight west for a number of miles until it ran out of gas, and then he just walked home. A couple of young fellows with a team of horses happened upon the car and towed it off to Wilkinsburg and traded it for a hunting rifle. 
I think half the people in the county owned that car for a day or so over a couple of months that it stayed missing. Then a good-sized family who had traded a heifer for it came sailing into Gilead to enjoy the 4th of July and got themselves arrested. The authorities traced it back through any number of swaps and IOUs and poker games, but never found the original thief. As it turned out, there were so many people involved in minor criminality having to do with buying that car and selling it that the resources of the law were in no way sufficient, so the whole thing was forgotten officially and remembered for a long time afterward because it was such a good story. People clearly knew the car was stolen, but they couldn't resist owning it for a little while, even though they didn't have the nerve to keep it which kept the price very reasonable and the temptation that much greater. <laughs> I love how the boy, Olive, 10 years old, steals a car and in the process sets off a chain of crimes that implicates half the people in the county. Nobody knew who the original thief was, but they all take part in this long, guilty chain of events, buying and selling a stolen car, even if they didn't have the nerve to keep it for more than a day or two. I love how no one in the little story is really evil or bad. Everyone knows the car is stolen. They're buying it and selling it in a kind of mirthful experiment at being bad. But no one has the nerve to be a real criminal and keep the car. It's a beautiful illustration of this old Christian idea which is that we're all good and yet inextricably drawn to mix and get mixed up in sin. We're all caught in this web of crimes and misdemeanors. We're not the original thief. We don't think of ourselves as essentially bad, but we keep the crime going nonetheless. I also love the sheer number of illegal transactions that exhausts the resources of the law which is a beautiful illustration of Paul's central point, which is that the law can only do so much. Something else is needed besides the law. It's impossible to fix the problem of the stolen car by tracking down and prosecuting every person who ever came into its possession. So what then can be done to set the world right? The answer, and this is what makes Robinson's writing so luminous. The answer is that the original thief has to repent and change his ways. The root of the problem is that that devil of a child named Jack has this penchant for crime. Can he be persuaded to change? Is that even possible? Can this old dying pastor find the grace in his heart to forgive his devil slash godson Jack and maybe even help him become a good person. Well, these are the wonderful themes of Lent, aren't they? Resentment and forgiveness, guilt and freedom, the devil and the good man. Now, at this point, we must pause for a word from our sponsor. <laughs> Have you been lying awake at night plotting revenge on your enemies? Do you seethe with resentment every time a certain person's name comes up in conversation? 
do you wish you could find a way to forgive that SOB rather than murdering him? <laughs> well, you might just want to sign up then for the retreat that we're holding this Saturday <laughs> entitled Finding Forgiveness, run by friend of the cathedral, Rob Boyle. The retreat's all about how to forgive. I mean, we all know we should forgive, but how do we do that? Rob Boyle says he has the answer. It's not too late to sign up. Details can be found on our website. Now, getting back to our sermon, and actually we're almost done. In our gospel reading this morning, we meet Jesus' nemesis, the devil. In the famous scene where Jesus is hungry after fasting for 40 days and nights, the devil says, oh, turn the stones into bread. And the devil takes him up to the tower and challenges him to throw himself off so the angels will swoop in and rescue him. And, and the devil offers to put Jesus in command of all the nations of the world if he would just bow down and worship him. And of course, Jesus just politely declines. Now we have to admit that from a storytelling point of view, from strictly kind of literary criticism here, it's a really boring story. Because we have come to expect over centuries of storytelling that when a bad guy shows up, the good guy takes off his gloves and punches the bad guy in the nose. Many of us would far prefer a story in which Jesus and the devil fight like superheroes. And that's, of course, what all the pagan stories did before Jesus. In the Greek, in the Babylonian, and the Old Norse myths, the adversary always gets defeated by violence. Even in the old Christian legends of the Desert Fathers, we find satisfying tales of old monks literally punching the devil in the face and rolling around in the sand with him. These are pagan myths of redemptive violence. The idea perpetuated by just about every hero movie and cop show and adventure sequence ever, ever filmed, that the solution to all our problems is the use of violence by good guys against bad guys. Even our most popular so-called Christian writers, C.S. Lewis and Tolkien, were simply recapitulating this essentially pagan mythology. There's really nothing Christian about stories in which devils are defeated through overwhelming violence. Because Jesus never resorts to violence as much as we may want him to. He never just pops open a can of spinach like Popeye and pounds the devil into the ground, which would be so much more satisfying. Instead, Jesus used wit and love and grace and scripture and never violence. Because Jesus understands that his biggest adversary is not the devil sitting next to him, it's the devil inside him. That part of him that wants security and magical powers and worldly power. The devil knows how much we want these things. We want to be protected from the pain of hunger. We want guardian angels to keep us from injury and death. Ultimately, we'd love to be in charge of the world so that people would just shut up and do what we say, right? These are Jesus' temp temptations and they are our own. 
But in his replies to the devil, Jesus just shows us a better way. The only way, really, to defeat the devil without becoming the devil, and that is to be in love with our lives as they are, not as we wish them to be. Jesus voluntarily, you know, comes into this world and takes on a real body subject to all kinds of physical insults like hunger and gravity and violence. He shows us how to love those real bodies, weak as they are, wrinkled and achy and destined to fail us in the end. He shows us how to be in love with our lives as they are, so we have no need for the devil's fantasies of power and escape. That's the secret to a happy life, Jesus says, to discover our love for reality over our preference for fantasy. So, we make our way through these days of mortality, which is the season of Lent, and I pray that we will keep these lessons of Jesus in mind, that when our lives get tough, and we find ourselves looking for a way out, wisdom draws us down and in rather than up and out. We're drawn down to the humble ground from which we are made and to which we will return. And we're drawn in to the quiet inner voice that loves it all, embracing the pain as well as the pleasure, the sorrow as well as the joy. In the presence of that love, all temptations vanish, and the devil, to our great delight, is driven away. Amen. <laughs>